We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We did a good introduction of it uh, last week. And of course, we had Easter Sunday on Sunday. So I uh, talked about 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5 again, or really 3 and 4. Uh, the very important passage where the Apostle Paul says, what I received uh, of first importance, I passed on to you that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that's like the bedrock of the gospel because without the death and resurrection of Jesus, then we don't have the guarantee of eternal life. So uh, we have to put our faith in that. Um, regardless of whether that seems rather impossible. And I said on Sunday, I admitted on Sunday, it is impossible. Dead people just don't get up. I mean, people revive after they've been dead for, you know, a few minutes or in one case, it was a movie made several years ago where a boy fell into a freezing, I think it was lake, might've been a river. And he was dead for like four hours. But in that case, you know, everything is, is very, very cold. The organs are very, very cold. It's still probably miraculous. The, the boy's mother was a Christian and it was a Christian movie, but it's not outside the realm of possibility that something like that would happen with natural causes, albeit even when natural causes are extremely rare, you can see God involved in those, right? Um, but people don't die. And so Jesus was probably dead for somewhere in the vicinity of 39 hours total. People don't die for that long and get up, right? Lazarus was dead for four days. That doesn't happen. Let's just be honest. That is scientifically impossible, but that's okay because creating the universe ex nihilio, which means out of, you know, nothing apparent is impossible. But what is impossible for humans is possible for who? God, because he's above this spatio-temporal reality that we are familiar with. He's got resources that are available to him that we can't even imagine. So we're not talking superstition here. We're not talking magic here. We're talking about the God who is the ground of all being, the essence of existence, the one who called the universe into existence. It really doesn't trouble me at all to believe in the virgin birth or the resurrection of Jesus. People who have those problems are simply people who have problems believing in the miraculous. They have a problem believing in the supernatural, which means they're stuck in this material, natural world. And really, even scientists uh, have to admit that once you go beyond the what we would call the initial creation event, the, the, the first fractions of a fraction of a second, of the Big Bang, they have no idea what happened. They have no idea what reality was like. It doesn't work, okay? They have to, uh, they have to uh, hypothesize multiple other dimensions other than our four dimensions. And these are scientists now. These aren't theologians, right? But they have to say, okay, well, you know, we just have to hypothesize that these other uh, dimensions had to have existed in order for our universe to come into existence. Or in our case today, you have uh, these folks that really would like to continue to uh, push the idea that the universe is eternal, even though there's, there's no evidence that the universe is eternal. In fact, all of the evidence points to the reality that the universe is temporal. It came into existence at a point in time. And it is moving further and further. All matter is moving further and further from all the other matter in the universe. All energy is proceeding further and further toward decay and death. 
and eventually, if left to its own natural uh, inherent tendencies, then the universe will simply die, okay? That's the natural. But where did it come from? Well, the, so they start positing this idea. Speculation is what it is. Uh, it's not even a, a hypothesis. It's speculation, wild speculation, in my opinion, of the multiverse. Well, we're very familiar with this because it has been popularized in superhero movies and all of these other, you know, it's like uh, the latest Spider-Man movie. You know, you have all these other Spider-Men coming in from other universes and so forth. And uh, so we just create these alternate realities. And it's interesting to me that we have no trouble living in that and saying, well, there could be, but you have a problem with the resurrection? Eh, okay. I think you have a problem with God is what you have a problem with. Because if you are willing to admit that there is a God, the God of the Bible, that is, who's created the universe, who created human beings in his image, then you have to behave, basically. You can't just make it up as you go along and decide that you want to do whatever you want to do. But that's what people want. People want to create everything in their own image, in their own idea. To the degree, I, I mean, you know, most of you in this room, with the exception of Misty, you're my age or older, would we have ever imagined when we were younger that people would doubt what gender they are? I remember, those of you that are older, do you remember discussion in the 70s about the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment? And there was concern, well, if you pass the Equal Rights Amendment, then that will mean that men would have to be given access to women's bathrooms. And everybody was like, oh, now we have men who want us to believe they're women who want to get into women's bathrooms. We have men who want us to believe they're women who want to compete in women's sports. Now, listen, I understand there are, there are emotional issues that are going on when somebody has this, this gender uh, dysphoria or whatever they call it. Um, and we should be sensitive to people who are dealing with this. But that doesn't mean that we need to buy into this alternate. Re so, uh, you know, to me, I, I really don't see a problem with believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead if you understand that there's a supernatural God. But if you realize there's a supernatural God who created us in his image, who created the universe in accordance with his own plan and pattern, that the universe is designed, it didn't come into existence randomly, then there is an order to things. In other words, there is a way that everything is supposed to be. That means there is a way that you are supposed to be and that I am supposed to be, and we don't get to just make it up. God didn't simply superimpose his will um, randomly upon us and say, you know what, I'm just going to call that right and that wrong. No, it's the way he designed everything. That's why that's right and that's wrong, okay? It's because the universe is carefully designed. All right, with all that in mind, I, that lengthy introduction is here because the problem that the Apostle Paul was addressing in the resurrection chapter is that there were people in the Corinthian church who did not believe in the bodily resurrection, period, okay? Jesus or anyone else. They simply did not believe in a bodily resurrection. So I'm going to read this uh, brief passage here. We read the whole chapter last week, and I would invite you to reread it and stay on top of that. 1 Corinthians 15, this is 12 through 19. Uh, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, the metaphor for death, in Christ have perished. That means they're done. It's over. There's no other life. There's no afterlife. It's over. If in Christ we have hope in this world or this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, you know, there was a time when Christianity was uh, the dominant moral and cultural force that one could say it's beneficial to be a Christian uh, just even if it's just in this life because you you live a better life when you follow Jesus and even in our world where Christianity is being opposed you can see that to some degree but bear in mind the apostle Paul was being uh, uh, persecuted and so were Christians and so you know he was saying, if Jesus hasn't really been raised from the dead, we're pathetic. All this stuff that we're going through, all this trouble, this trial, this tribulation that we're going through. And see, this is the difficulty that anybody has, if they're honest, with attempting to explain the origins of Christianity if Jesus wasn't actually raised. Why were these people willing to go through so much torment? Right? Most people... And, and, you know, the, the Christians that, that we see in the Bible seem to be incredibly uh, reasonable and moral people. You know, moral, reasonable people don't want to torture themselves. They don't want unnecessary pain and suffering. What is the point, right? Well, there is no point if Jesus wasn't actually raised from the dead. But see, not only did they just believe that because they were told, that was the testimony within them because they received the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, right? The third person of the Trinity, but he brings Christ into us. So we could call him the Spirit of Christ also. And he brings that reality to us. He, he is the, 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 the first fruit, the first taste, if you will, of an afterlife. And so the apostles who initially did not believe that Jesus rose, um, were convinced when Jesus appeared to them in the upper room. And they were still not terribly courageous about preaching the gospel until Jesus, 40 days later, ascended and then sent the Holy Spirit on the 50th day, on the day of Pentecost. And, you know, that famous passage, and we talked about it when we were looking at 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, um, the passage in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit descended on them in tongues of fire, and they spoke in other tongues, and suddenly they had this boldness that they had never had before, and they were willing to suffer, because they knew there's something way beyond this. There's something bigger than this. This isn't all there is, right? I can't even remember the name of the movie. There was a, a movie back in like the late 80s, early 90s. I remember there was a common line from it, is this all there is? Really? Is this all there is? And yet if we look around us today, I mean, sure, we have plenty of opportunity to enjoy our lives and 
Um, you know, we have a lot of comforts in this nation that a lot of people don't have and so forth. But, you know, after you get to be my age, you, y'all's age, most of you, uh, you know, and even Misty, you're younger, but I bet you feel this way sometimes. It's like, what is the point? <laughs> you know, life sucks, frankly. It just really does sometimes. Let's just be quite honest. But if we realize that there's a purpose in this, right? And that this isn't all there is. Is this all there is? No, that's the answer. No, this is not all there is. So stop, you know, clawing to the earth and clinging to the earth like, oh, this is all there is. You know what? It's uh, yeah, I, I enjoy what I do. I'm glad that I started this church. I enjoy what I do in this church. But, you know, even I, I, I say, is this all there is? No, this is that there has to be more, right? I'm preparing myself and I'm preparing you for more for something more and other than this. Amen? That's what Christianity has always been about. It's been about, sure, live a better life here, but it's about this world that we're going to inhabit where Christ is in charge, right? Where we don't have this president or that president or this party or that party in charge constantly fighting and shrilly screaming at each other and, you know, everybody, hey, I'm going to vote you out of office and all of this, you know, just all the drama that's going on in the world. I I went ahead and uh, got back on Twitter again. I'm not really, I, I haven't really advertised it much and I don't have people following me. I just, it's a way to keep up with the news. And they're so biased. They're so incredibly biased. But one of the things that I'm enjoying is that Elon Musk, who is the, the uh, founder and the head of uh, Tesla, and also this, he has a, an organization called SpaceX. They're currently sending more satellites into orbit than any other entity on Earth, including governments. Okay. Um, he's the richest man in the world right now. His, his wealth, you know, fluctuates depending on the stock prices of Tesla, essentially, but he's worth about a quarter of a trillion dollars. That's one guy. Okay. He wants to buy Twitter. They don't want him to buy Twitter. He tweets all the time. But the reason he wants to buy Twitter is so that he can uh, make sure that it is available to anyone as a free speech platform. It's not. None of them are. Are you on Facebook? I guarantee you, depending on what you post, their algorithm will put you up or down in everybody else's timeline. I was informed by Facebook. Uh, before I went to uh, <clears throat> my Facebook fast that I did, when I, during uh, Lent, all I did was check Facebook in the morning. And if you saw posts, it was automatic posts that were happening because when I set up a stream, it automatically posted over to Facebook and says, hey, this is coming up and all of these other things. Or a couple of times people had birthdays and I saw it at the top and I said, hey, happy birthday. And that's it. But I just stayed off, left it off my phone, all of the above. Honestly, I haven't missed it. What they did is they deprioritized my posts. Do you know why they deprioritized my posts? I think I might have mentioned that this in here before. I have uh, a friend who used to go to this church way back in the early 2000s. Her name is Arianne, and she's an actress. Her son is actually more famous than she is. Uh, her son has been in several different movies. In fact, he's in the current uh, Doctor Strange movie that's coming out. Her son is going to be in that movie. If you watched uh, WandaVision, 
right? And this is on Disney Plus, and I'm off of that platform now. But WandaVision was one of the, the Marvel characters, right, uh, who she becomes the Scarlet Witch, and she's got all this power and whatever. But she has two sons, and one of her sons has the same kind of power as her to manipulate objects and all this. Well, that son is Ariane's boy, okay? Uh, his name is Julian. Anyway, I've never met the kid. I, you know, he's only 10 years old and I haven't seen Ariane in person since the early 2000s. But she posted something on Facebook from a movie she's in, right? Now, in the movie she's in, there's this cowboy and he slaps the crud out of her, right? Which, you know, it's a movie and hopefully there's a good, I don't mean a good reason like there's ever a reason for a man to hit a woman. I mean that in the plot, there's some reason other than just being violent to a woman and I would suspect that there is. But so I posted, right? Throat punch that cowboy. It's a clip from a movie where a man is abusing a woman. Facebook said, you're violent. We are banning you from posting anything for 24 hours. We're deprioritizing all of your posts. I didn't know this. I wasn't even allowed to post in any groups, including the groups that I've created. This is these Nazis. That's the world we're living in, man. So here's Elon Musk, who simply wants to open up the algorithm, you know, because th this was, um, this is, uh, you know, talk about artificial intelligence. That's what it is. A person didn't say, oh, look, oh, well, that's a movie clip. So no. This is artificial intelligence who just saw these words and said, you're wrong. Get out of here. Get ready, friends. Hang on. Okay? Hang on. Because these things are only going to get worse. But this is, this is unanimity among the tech community. This is what they want to do across the board. Well, Elon Musk wants to buy Twitter and eliminate that on that particular platform. Right? So all of a sudden, this darling of the left, because he created a company that sells more electric cars than anybody else, and they're constantly screaming shrilly about, you know, carbon footprint and global warming, or now they call it climate change and all this other stuff. And Elon Musk has done more to combat that than anyone. Now they hate him. Now they hate him because he simply wants free speech. Now, I'm not saying that like he's this great Christian or anything like that, um, but I am for free speech because that allows you and I to preach the gospel, right? Where somebody doesn't get in charge and say, well, I don't like what you have to say, so you're not allowed to preach the gospel. Um, in any event, I got back on Twitter and uh, I'm not actively seeking people. If I don't post anything on Twitter because there's nobody following me, so it's irrelevant. But it lets me see, that was a long rabbit trail. But what it lets me see is how utterly insane our world is right now. I have never seen anything in all my years on this planet, 60 of them now, how utterly insane our world is. It's crazy what these people are saying and doing right now. And I mean on the far right and on the far left. The problem is, and this is something that, that uh, Musk has said. He said, uh, if the, if the, 10% on the far right and the 10% on the far left are against you, you're probably doing what's right. That's probably true. But who do you hear? You don't hear the people in the middle. You hear these shrill, screaming extremists on the left and these crazies over on the right. That's what you hear. There's a whole lot of us that are in the middle.
and we can just have conversations and not hate each other. And we can be just like this, uh, you know, this church is set up today with a big middle aisle. We can be sitting on either side of the aisle and still be friends. Isn't that amazing? Okay. All right. So the passage for today, um, verse 12 is really informing us about why Paul wrote the entire chapter. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Right? Um, I'm just trying to decide how much of this that I want to relate to you. I have a lot of notes here. Let's just say, let's go to here. The Apostle Paul was addressing two cultures, both of which denied the resurrection. Okay? Now, um, there were... Uh, I don't know about a significant number, but there were very important Jews in Paul's day who did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in the afterlife. They did not believe in spirits. They did not believe in angels. They were called the Sadducees. In fact, they were in charge of the temple. They believed that this life is all there is, right? Um, now, interestingly, the party that Paul had belonged to prior to becoming a Christian do you know what uh, religio-political party he belonged to? You know of the Sadducees, what's the other one? The one you hear about more often? The Pharisees. the Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee. The Pharisees did believe in the resurrection from the dead. They did believe in the spirit, in spirits. They did believe in angels, right? But there were a significant number of Jews that did not believe in a bodily resurrection. And for the Greeks, the body was seen as a prison for the soul. And this really comes from Plato. Um, there were a significant number of Greeks who were, uh, we would call them atomists. They'd be materialists. They just believed that there was one thing, right? And that is material. That's all there is. There's just matter. That's all there is. And therefore, when you die, you just pretty much die, right? Um, William Barclay writes this. Immortality lay precisely in getting rid of the body. So this is the majority of the Greek culture, the Hellenistic culture, uh, under the influence of Plato. For them, the resurrection of the body was unthinkable. They thought the body was terrible. It was a prison. Personal immortality did not really exist because that which gave life was absorbed again in God, the source of all life. So there was a group of philosophers in the Apostle Paul's day called uh, the Stoics. And the Stoics, the Stoics conceptualized God as a fire and each of us as sparks from that fire. And upon death, the spark simply returns to the fire. The part simply returns to the whole, right? So change it to water, you know, you're, you're part of a stream that simply flows back into the ocean. And this ocean is their concept of God, a very impersonal concept, by the way. Um, well, Paul spoke to uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers at the Areopagus in Athens. And we find that uh, in Acts chapter 17. And he talked to them about uh, God, God as creator, that God cannot be modeled after anything, that, uh, that God is essentially spiritual in nature. And at the conclusion of his talk, he introduced Jesus. He said, Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. And God demonstrate that, demonstrated that by raising him from the dead. As soon as he said that, they said, 
stop. And they started mocking him, some of them. In fact, here's what it says in Acts 17.32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. A few of them followed Paul. Now, the Epicureans would certainly have mocked because they were materialists and they didn't believe in any afterlife at all. They were like the Sadducees. The Stoics would have had a problem because they didn't see a bodily resurrection factoring into their philosophy. And Platonists would certainly not have agreed with that as well. In the New International Commentary of the New Testament, F.F. Bruce writes the following. The idea of resurrection of dead people was uncongenial to the minds of most of Paul's Athenian hearers. All of them, except the Epicureans, would no doubt have agreed with him had he spoken of the immortality of the individual soul. But as for resurrection, they would have endorsed the sentiments of the god Apollo expressed on the occasion when the very court of the Areopagus was founded by the city's patron goddess Athene. And this is supposedly, the following is supposedly a statement by the god Apollo, right? Once a man dies and the earth drinks up his blood, there is no resurrection. This was the Greek view. So this is why resurrection from the dead uh, was as hard a sell to them as it is to the mind of many people today, okay? Contrast that with the Christian viewpoint of the bodily resurrection. Uh, again, William Barclay. Paul's view was quite different. If we begin with one immense fact, the rest will become clear. The Christian belief is that after death, individuality will survive. You will still be you. Don't we affirm that? Don't we believe that? I'm not simply absorbed into the whole. I don't lose my personality, okay? So in Buddhism, uh, often confused by Christians uh, with heaven, there is a belief in nirvana. Have you heard of nirvana? I don't mean the band from the 90s. I mean nirvana, okay? The Buddha is said to have achieved nirvana. Now, Buddha is not a name. It's a title. It means exalted one, okay? His name was Gautama, and he lived 600 years before Jesus. Um, they did not have the idea of an individual bliss, heaven, whatever, right? Nirvana means literally a blowing out. It means to cease to exist. To cease to exist is to cease to suffer. That's heaven for them, right? Um, Buddhism is really the only major religion that is essentially atheistic, uh, following the, the thought of uh, Eastern religions. They do believe that there are many gods with a little g, but they don't want to become gods. They want to leave existence altogether because existence is about what they call dukkha, which is just suffering. And again, we can find ourselves in times like that. And of course, this is why people become suicidal. They think they can just blow it out and end it all. The reality is we're all going to stand before God in judgment. You're not going to blow it out and end it all. You're going to have to give an answer for your life, right? Um, so uh, the Christian belief is that after death, individu individuality will survive, that you will still be you and I will still be me. Beside that, we have to set another immense, we have to set another, beside that, we have to set another immense fact. To the Greeks, the body could not be consecrated. That means made holy. It was matter, the source of all evil, the prison house of the soul. But to Christians, the body is not evil. Now, I hope you don't think your body is evil. Maybe sometimes 
you know, we, there are things we don't like about our bodies, but hopefully you don't have this idea that your body is somehow evil or the source of evil. When the Apostle Paul talks about the flesh, he's not talking about the body. He's talking about us apart from God. So if you are imprisoned by the desires of your body, then that's bad, right? That's worthless. That's evil. But it's not because your body is evil. It's because you won't take control over it. And to a, a great degree, apart from a spiritual awakening, revival, okay, um, we may be incapable of maintaining, gaining the kind of control over ourselves that we need to have. But one of that's among the many things that uh, the Holy Spirit provides for us is self-control. Jesus, the Son of God, has taken this human body upon him, and therefore it is not contemptible because it has been inhabited by God. To Christians, therefore, the life to come involves the total person, body and soul. Amen? That just makes better sense. Right? Try to imagine yourself floating about like a ghost. No, this is, uh-uh. It just doesn't work. Okay? In some weird alternate reality. This is why people have, you know, maybe such an aversion to the concepts of heaven that have been promoted to them. It's just, you know, this ethereal realm where we're just going to all float around in clouds and it just doesn't make any sense, right? No, it's a bodily resurrection. And in the end, heaven is going to be a new heaven, new sky, new space, and a new earth, a renewed earth. And Christ is going to reign on earth over resurrected humans. I like that. So when there have been times on earth when you think this is an amazing place, and there have been times like that, right? You know, when the weather's nice or when you can see the stars and you know, things are going the way you'd like for them to go. You're like, yeah, this, is, this can be awesome. That's just a little glimpse of what it's going to be. Heaven is not some weird foreign place. You're getting ready for it right now. Everything that's bad about this planet is going to be done away with, including all the bad people. This is why we can't believe in universalism. If everybody's going to heaven, then heaven is going to be just like earth is right now, which means it's going to be hell. <laughs> okay? The people who want to be with God and submit themselves to God and surrender themselves to God and live for Jesus are going to hear the call and choose to do that. And the people that don't, well, I'm sorry, just be nice to them because this is as good as it gets for them. My hope is in uh, what is called evangelical conditionalism, and that is that after death, those that are outside of Christ are raised, they are judged, and they are destroyed forever, right? Not eternal conscious torment where flames are licking their bodies and, you know, they're just screaming forever. I don't know how heaven can be heaven for us with that going on, okay? I think God is good, but I don't think that means that everybody's going to heaven. I think that that means that people who don't want to be with God ultimately will get their wish and they will end. And then it'll be a new world. And that's a good thing, right? N.T. Wright, with reference to Jesus' resurrection, writes the following. And N.T. Wright wrote an absolute tome about the resurrection. The resurrection of the Son of God, I think, is the, is the name of it. It's like 800 pages long. He wrote, this body has also been transformed. It is clearly physical. So when he's talking about the resurrected body, he's talking about the resurrected body of Jesus, right? 
So Jesus' resurrected body. This body, Jesus' resurrected body, has also been transformed. It is clearly physical. It uses up, so to speak, the matter of the crucified body, hence the empty tomb. But equally, it comes and goes through locked doors. It is not always recognized. And in the end, it disappears into God's space. That is, heaven, through the thin curtain that in much Jewish thought separates God's space from human space. I love it. I absolutely love it. Just a very helpful explanation. And Jesus is called the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That means his body is what your body is going to be like. That's great. Okay? So apart from Christ's resurrection, uh, there would have been no way to overcome death. Although the crucifixion pays the death penalty for human beings, providing forgiveness, that forgiveness would have been incomplete, impotent, and irrelevant if human beings remain mortal. The sting of death is sin, and the sting is removed by the cross, but death would remain apart from Christ's resurrection. Jesus didn't have to just die on the cross. He had to overcome death, our mortal enemy. No pun intended. To look at it another way, sin causes death and condemnation, and condemnation because of sin makes the grave permanent. Okay, Sin causes death. We die. And then we're condemned because of our sin, the curse of sin, right? And that makes the grave a permanent thing. When Christ died for our sins, he removed the cause and the permanence of death. Thus, God raised Jesus from the dead. Christ became our sin, died as us for that sin, then rose because we're justified in him. The scripture says, and I quoted this on Sunday, uh, this is Romans 4.25. It says, um, Christ died for our transgressions or our wrongdoings, or he died because of our transgressions, and he was raised because of our justification. You see, once the transgression has been dealt with, there's no more reason for the death penalty. The curse has been removed. So Christ, I love how one, uh, one fellow says it. Uh, I think this is Dallas Willard, calls Jesus um, the death-conquering master of the universe. I like that. So when the death-conquering master of the universe rose, he defeated death altogether. Now, the only way you're going to defeat death is to be in Christ, right? So apart from the resurrection, there can be no rebirth, no eternal life, and the Holy Spirit would not be given to dwell with believers. Apart from the Holy Spirit, there would be no conviction, there would be no assurance of truth, no wisdom, no guidance, no comfort, no power to overcome temptation. We absolutely have to have both the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's absolutely essential. You can't just have the death of Jesus and then some ethereal, spiritual something or another, right, where Jesus is floating. No, you have to have a real Jesus. Now, it's called a spiritual body. We have this idea that spiritual means non-corporeal. There's no body. No, it's a spiritual body, but it is a body. And as we'll see, if we get far enough today, and if not today, next week, when I read the passages uh, from the New Testament about this, from the Gospels, um, when Jesus appeared, he did, in fact, have a body. He said, here, touch me. Give me something to eat, right? That's good. That helps us to understand this physical existence that we have is not an accident, right? And although the physical that we now inhabit, that 
you know, is ephemeral, temporal, uh, dying. Uh, that is not going to be the physical that we're going to endure. There are many aspects of the physical that will continue to endure. Uh, the individuality, uh, the, the substantial. We, we will be substantial, not insubstantial, right? Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Yeah, here, here are the passages. Um, I didn't realize I had put them so close. So it's quite simple. If there's no such thing as a bodily resurrection at all, then Christ was not raised from the dead. The Jews, many of them, did expect judgment, right? A judgment day and a bodily resurrection. And we see this with Martha and Mary. When their brother Lazarus had died, Martha confessed, well, I know that he will be raised in the resurrection on the last day. And to that, what did Jesus reply? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Wow. So in one sense, there is a spiritual resurrection. Your spirit is reborn, right? Resurrected from the dead. But that's not where it stops. That's where the Holy Spirit inhabits you and gives a rebirth to your spirit, but then your physical body will die. But at one point, at some point, right, when Christ returns, then you will be bodily raised from the dead. So um, what we're referring to here is not merely a spiritual resurrection in the sense of a, an insubstantial resurrection uh, or some sort of symbolic thing. Um, Jesus had a real body. He wasn't a spirit or a ghost. And here's where the Gospels clearly testify to this when their writers tell about the appearances of Jesus to the disciples. Here's Matthew 28, beginning with verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They took hold of his actual feet and worshipped him. Luke 24. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit, insubstantial, a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. So he bore the wounds. He continued to have the scars because that was a part that is a part of his identity. He is the suffering servant. Everything that is a part of your essential identity will continue in the resurrection. So whatever it is about, about you that sets you apart and makes you you, you're going to continue to have, right? He says, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. He said to them, have you anything to eat here? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took and ate before them. Now, I don't believe that this is because he needed food, but isn't it wonderful that he could eat and choose to enjoy food? I think the resurrection is going to be awesome. Okay. Because maybe we can eat and not get fat. <laughs> John, this is from uh, Gospel of John. Uh, this is chapter 20. On the evening, chapter 20, verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, this is the upper room, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. 
When he had said this, he showed them his hand and his side. Once again, so his side, remember the spear was pierced his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Wow, wow, wow. What a skeptic, right? But you know, anybody that had seen what Jesus went through would have had a hard time believing. And dead people didn't just rise and walk around, okay? Jesus is the first. So we have the, you know, the... Uh, the account of Elijah being carried up into heaven and Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. But that's not a resurrection, okay? That's a translation into this heavenly spiritual existence prior to the resurrection, if you will. Jesus is the first one to be resurrected, period. They had never seen that. They were looking forward to that it, at the end Right? When everything is over, judgment day, then people are raised and judged. But that Jesus was raised, uh, you know, ahead of that, they, that was unexpected. They didn't know. Okay? Verse 24 of John 20. Um, no, I already did that. Let's go down to verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Notice he's always saying peace, right? This isn't like a 60s thing. Jesus is not coming and going, peace, right? They're scared. <laughs> when Jesus shows up, they're scared. So he's always saying, peace be with you. Um, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Greatest confession in all the scripture. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know who that is? That's you. You've not seen him. Do you believe? Then you're blessed. That's what that says. Let's go to the next. Uh, this is verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is not true that the dead are raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Jesus was not resurrected, then Christianity is predicated on a lie. Now, I know I'm hammering this a lot, but that's because Paul did. But there are entire churches today who have preachers and teachers that do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, that do not believe in the deity of the Son of God. Are you ready for that? Okay. There's a church right up the street here that belongs to a denomination that did away with the confession that Jesus is Lord, that is, Jesus is God, as necessary to belong to their denomination. You don't have to believe that Jesus is God. We just want you to come and be a part of our club. Okay. Um, there are plenty of churches today that have, they departed from the scripture a long time ago and they're just reinventing everything. They don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. When I was going to Baylor University, um, there were representatives from various seminaries. A seminary is a graduate school for those that want to enter ministry. And there were representatives from 
representatives from various seminaries that came to the Baptist Student Center there. And so we could visit with them and talk with them about their seminary. And so I met with a fellow from a seminary called Golden Gate. Now it it changed. It used to be in San Francisco and they moved now now called Gateway Seminary. And I don't know if their theology is changed or not. I think it has. But now they're called Gateway Seminary and they're in the Los Angeles area. But at that point in time, I was seriously considering going to Golden Gate Seminary because I'd always thought if I, you know, I, I laid this out, right? I applied to uh, two different uh, colleges, universities. I applied to Baylor University in Waco, Texas. I applied to Biola University in La Mirada, California. That's in L.A., right? And so what I had planned, and this was my plan, <clears throat> was that if the Lord wanted me to go to Biola, then I would come to Texas and go to Southwestern Seminary, which is in Fort Worth. Um, you know, so I would have the opportunity to be a part of these two different parts of the country and so forth. Um, <clears throat> and then if the Lord wanted me to go to Baylor, then I would go to Golden Gate because that was the only Baptist seminary in California at the time, uh, Southern Baptist Seminary anyway. And so I met with this fellow that was a representative of Golden Gate. This is somebody promoting the seminary who tells me he does not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. So I'm like a man running out of a burning building. There is no way I am going to your seminary. If this is your representative, this is who you send. Whatever you think your official position is, if this is who you send to represent your seminary and he doesn't believe in the bodily resurrection, of, there's no reason for Christianity apart from the bodily resurrection of Jesus. As the Apostle Paul will say later, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Party on, friends. What a bunch of nonsense. I can't, can I just be honest? I can't stand religion. I hate it. It's disturbing. For the most part, it's superstitious, it's stupid, it's pointless, it's excessively emotional. It doesn't have any bearing to real life, right? And it doesn't matter which religion it is. Pick one, right? But Christianity, when you get to its roots, when you follow Jesus, is just so different. It's so real, right? There's a correspondence to reality, that these other religions just don't seem to have. There's no grounding with them, okay? So um, this is the third time we've encountered this word vain, okay? If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain, right? Um, previously, three times. Um, the third time in chapter 15. Previously, Paul used a word translated vain in verse two, but I want you to see that these three times that it's used are actually three different Greek words, okay? So in verse two, he says, unless it was in vain, that is, unless your faith was in vain, right? And the Greek word there is ike, and it means to no purpose or without cause. So in essence, you, they could have translated it pointless, right? Your faith is pointless, and then Paul uses another word, also translated vain, in verse 10, uh, when he says, his grace toward me was not in vain. And he uses the word kenos, 
which here means without effect or being devoid of intellectual, moral, or spiritual value. It is a word in Greek that means empty. Your faith is empty. There's nothing to it. It contains nothing. It's the emperor's new clothes, okay? The emperor thinks he's dressed in these gorgeous robes because they've convinced him he's parading around naked. You have nothing. And then the present example is the word mateus, and it means being of no use, idle, empty, fruitless, useless, powerless, lacking truth. I love it. I love words. It's so awesome. The, tr the same word is translated futile in verse 17. Your faith is futile. Let's just go do something else. Okay? And we're going to go to our intrinsic later anyway. We'll just spend the time over there instead of over here. Right? And you guys can just keep donating to my fund so I'll have, you know, something to live off of. But other than that, there's no point. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. It's not enough for Jesus to die for your sin. He has to be raised to overcome death. Then he says, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're just dead. They're not floating around spiritually somewhere. They're just dead. They're gone. That's the end. That's what the atheists say, right? If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. Without Christ's victory over death, there is no victory over sin. We have no power to overcome sin if the cross is not empty. Let's say, for the sake of argument, that Christ's death alone could bring forgiveness of sins because it paid the penalty we owe. We'd still be under sin's power, which means we would be the same. Yes. See, this is how some people live. They just want forgiveness. And then they want to go on in sin. That's not what we're talking about. The word in Greek that is translated forgiveness is the word aphiomi. Do you know what it means? It doesn't mean, oh, don't worry about that. That's all right. It's okay. Yeah, hey, you're only human. <laughs> Get out of here, you rascal. No, it means remove. A fear means, means to remove. God doesn't want to just say, it's okay. It's okay. No, he wants to remove the sin from you. It's like a surgery, Right? Like they had to remove your, your son's toe because it was infected and it was going to hurt the rest of his body. They had to remove it, get rid of it. It's killing him. They tried to heal it. It wouldn't heal. They had to get rid of it. Cut it off. Drain the infection. That's sin. It's killing us. He has to remove it. That's what happens, right? So, Jesus' death demonstrates God's love for us in an amazing way. There's some people that are like, well, that's, that's what the cross is about. It's about God proving his love for us. Well, that's true, but that's not all it is, right? Um, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we're of all people most to be pitied. The bodily resurrection of Christ absolutely is absolutely essential in order for us to have real and lasting hope. Faith apart from that is faith from an... Uh, it's faith without an enduring hope. And I don't know how you have faith without hope. Actually, you can't. That's the definition of faith, right? Faith is the assurance of what? Things hoped for. You have to have hope out here. That faith is tethering to, right? And the hope is of resurrection, of eternal life, of a life beyond this, above this, right? So this faith that doesn't require that 
eternal hope is, is going to inevitably fail. It's really probably just kind of religion, a good feeling, whatever. Uh, what, what incentive is there to keep believing through the difficulties of, of, of this life if there's nothing for us beyond the grave? And this is why a lot of people are leaving church. This is why a lot of churches have long ago left behind um, the, the biblical witness, right? Because they simply don't have faith any longer. And so they're little more than social gatherings, right? They're places where people have traditionally gathered and they continue to gather and they listen to whoever the latest preacher is there and the music and whatever, but it's just tradition. They're just kind of, you know, it's like the locomotive going down the tracks has lost power. But you know, it'll keep going for quite a while with no power because there's a lot of momentum there. But eventually the momentum dies and the train stops. And that's what you're going to see with all of these denominations that have embraced the culture rather than Christ. They're going to die. They're already changing. There are a lot of, ch- I used to say, you know, you know, pick a church. Most churches, as long as they're preaching Jesus, are going to be fine. But they, they're preaching a different Jesus. You need to find a church that is preaching God's word, the, the Bible, and is teaching it plainly, right? This teaching that it is actually literally true. They're not reinterpreting it. They're not adjusting it to agree with the culture. That's what we find happening today, right? Um, so faith apart from hope, the hope of eternal life is pointless and it's eventually going to die. What kind of hope is there in a quote-unquote spiritual resurrection, a non-corporeal, insubstantial, perhaps impersonal existence? A lack of firm faith in Christ's and thus the believer's bodily resurrection eviscerates and emasculates the gospel. So, in essence, I'll introduce by quoting the first verse uh, from next week's passage. Um, and this is one that I memorized a long time ago, and I would commend to you for memorization. It's not very long. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, the translation here, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's our hope for eternal life. Amen? All right. We'll come back next week, and I'm going to say we're probably going to have two more weeks, at the most three, but probably two more weeks in 1 Corinthians 15. So God bless you. Thank you guys for joining us online. We appreciate it, and I hope you'll join us in person sometime.